Hello, I'm Rabbi Iggy, and welcome to Tattoos and Torah. Hello, hi, and welcome to another episode of Tattoos and Torah. Hello, Brian. Hello, Iggy. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing extraordinary. Glad, really grateful to be here. Same. So, I guess for those people who don't know you, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us about what you're doing these days, where you're coming from, what's exciting today and into the future. Awesome. Okay. Love this question. I always say that, that what I've been through is just factual. It doesn't define me. I have a pretty interesting background. I grew up, pretty much I'll sum it up as a wrestler. I was a Division One wrestler, full ride. And then I thought that I wanted to become a model. I modeled as hard as I possibly could and got on what is called America's Next Top Model. As fast as I got on that show, I got kicked off that show. I was the first one out, which was devastating to the ego. And then I went through a healing journey. And there's so many different things that prepared me to be able to have this conversation with you today. But the funniest part of the story is I got on another reality show about a year or two ago called The Circle on Netflix. It's another large reality show. And I got on, first one on right? Again, first one out on this one. I have the world record for doing the worst you possibly can on reality TV shows. If the universe keeps telling you, you shouldn't be on the reality show, I feel that's a badge of honor. Yeah, exactly. But the cool thing about this is I was two drastically different people when I was on those shows. And the difference of my behaviors and identity and the way that I carried myself was a testament to the breath work, the meditation and the healing that I now teach all around the world. If you look back, I think 2016 or something, there's a video of me crying my eyes out saying, I thought this was going to be my career, the modeling, right? I thought this was going to be my career, and, and oh, I guess I'll find something else to do. And then fast forward five years on the circle after so much healing work, so much in-depth study and focus, I as soon as I found out I was getting out, in my head I was like, oh, this is the time to reclaim my power back from something that made me feel so insignificant. And I sat down on a couch. I opened up my arms as big as I possibly could. I leaned back. I tilted up my head, right? I started breathing in power. And I was like, I'm so grateful for this experience, this once-in-a-lifetime experience. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I restructured the way that I interacted with that experience, and it healed a lot for me. So anyways, that's a fun, arcing narrative that's been going on throughout my life that has been weirdly influential. But as far as what I'm doing now, I have a lineage of breathwork I created called A Language of Breath. And that's from ceremonial courses to advanced course to suit some neo-tantra techniques as well. And we have over 150 students in the classes, which is good, 150 teachers that are actively working and changing people's lives. I've had the opportunity to work with corporations like Spotify, HBO, United Nations, Daily Yoga, Allo, all these, Discovery Inc. I've gotten in on the corporation level to be able to help employees, especially during quarantine, with their mental health, with their emotional health, with their spiritual health as well. And there's been a bunch of other little things, but I think that's primarily what I need to go over today, just because I know we're hyper-focused on the breathwork and the healing stuff. All in general, right? Because I think, again, right, as, as Bob Lennon says, we contain multitudes, right? You believe in peace theory? I often describe myself as, in terms of my identity, that I've got a hyphenated identity. Because there's a hyphen between all the different parts that sort of I and others would define me, right? I am a father. I am a gay person. I am an immigrant. I am an American. I am a, right, a spiritual leader. I'm a rabbit, right? You got the niche and the niche of the niche. 
Exactly, right? But I'm neither of these things and I'm all these things. But really where I live is in the hyphen, right? In that space between those different pieces. And just as much as I am a theologian and I so speak and work and teach very deep things, I also am obsessed with the, the real housewives and Beverly Hills and, and I love fashion. I do think we contain multitudes in the sense of sort of that we're never just one thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in Jungian theory, they have the parts work where in any moment there can be a part of you that's taking over and driving the spaceship or driving the human body. And it's fun to dive into the archetypes that we all are inhabited by to notice, okay, when I'm angry, you know, whatever that part's acting up, you acknowledge, okay, that's that version of me right now. This is the tendencies and behaviors that uh, it normally has. What can I do to shift that state if it's applicable to that situation? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I guess let's start. So for those people who don't know what breath work is, what is breath work? Because we all breathe. And in fact, sometimes, and maybe we'll get to it, right? Sometimes if I think too much about my breath, I stop breathing. So that, that I get aware of it and then I stop doing it. So I don't want to think about it because I don't want it to stop. <laughs> That's deep on many levels. I would say first, my grandfather pulled me aside two years ago. I've been doing this for quite a long time. He pulled me aside two years ago and he's like, hey, you know, you're selling snake oil. And I was like, listen, I would have could have won a world peace award. He would have said the same thing. But still, it's interesting to see that there's a huge learning curve of people that intellectually understand about breathwork and the people that have directly experienced it and reaped its incredible benefits and healing properties. So I always recommend I can speak about it, but go try it for yourself. And you're going to really be like, whoa, this stuff is real. You can't understand it through the words. So primarily breath work 8,000 years ago was designed to prepare people and yogis for deeper states of meditation. And when you use the breath, you're able to clear out the surface level karma or the conditioning or the thought patterns, right? Very quickly, when you begin to breathe, you realize that your mind is ruled by your breath. So if you want to fix your mind, if you want to let go of your mind, your breathwork is a powerful tool to do so. Simultaneously, in Western culture now, it's been used for rebirthing. So they believe that the first breath that you have when you enter this world is imprinted on and then replicated, and then it is continuously suppressed at different times in your life. And then eventually you get these seeds of anxiety, of depression, of stress, within your respiratory system that at some level needs to go back and healed so then you could have that perfect breath again to have that perfect balanced nervous system to be able to think correctly and be your healthiest right now. So those are the primary two schools of thought, both powerful. I think the way that I teach the most is breath work as a language, right? In any given moment, even when I'm speaking to you right now, my first interaction with you is how deep I'm breathing you in. And if I don't feel safe around you, then my breathing pattern is going to be inhibited. And that's going to be a flag of like, oh, this person doesn't make me feel safe. So when I meet anybody, when I shake their hand, when I give them a hug, the first thing I do is I try to breathe them in as deep as I can so I can lead with trust. Interesting. I never really thought about that, that breathing somebody in. And also, I've noticed that sort of that when I'm with people that I like, my breath synchronizes with them we start sort of breathing in the same pattern, which is quite fascinating. Yeah, it, it turns into like a, it's very delicious, that essence of that, right? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Here, here's the thing around that, right? We met at a workshop that sort of you were running, right? And we spent like an hour together. It's like breathing and doing breathing exercises. And it was great and fun and quite remarkable, right? And, and in that sense, when we are with people, right? And you are very loving and granted, so like we have this connection. So, right? So we have this sort of big, deep hug, right? Together, right? And right when we're breathing each other in, which is great, but like in recovery or people who work, like sometimes, right, there are people that are not as sort of, you know, I, I want, I right, I love you and I want what's best for you. But presumably there are people in the world who don't want that or at least don't want that consciously. So how do you protect yourself? How do you make sure that you're not breathing in, right, any, I won't say any toxicity because every life needs to have some, but how do you make sure? And the reason I'm asking this is because I think for so many people who are listening to us, people in recovery, seekers are very sensitive people, perhaps hypersensitive people, Yes, which is why the drugs, the alcohol, it's a kind of armor in, in a way that sort of works for a little while until it doesn't. So how do you negotiate sort of that part of the world, especially since you were discussing, right, so like America's next top model and so like in reality, which, you know, again, I have many friends thing, no judgment, anyone, don't come at me, but like not filled with always the best people, people with the best intentions, let's put it that way. hundred percent. I love that you're bringing this up and there's so many ways to take this conversation. I would say a very interesting way to take this is when a lot of the heaviness or the pain that we get via our sensitivity and our empathy is because we're picking up on the things that we're interpreting in the field. And at the same level, it's fun to realize that we're still perceiving that through our brain's best guess and memory of what we think that is. You follow me? So when we're perceiving anything or any situation, if we have a perception of that thing that's dense or judgmental, or mean, or whatever it is, that within ourselves is what's ultimately going to be weighing us down. It's going to be where we start when we want to heal, when we want to shift, right? If we're seeing anyone and we begin to perceive them negatively, then at some level, again, that is something that's within ourselves that can be shifted and altered and transcended. Simultaneously, we do need to protect ourselves, Right? But we don't need to protect ourselves with our intellectual perception of that thing. Our intellectual perception of the thing can all be love, ultimately. And granted, something's going to come up and we can shift it. What we want to do is we want to tap into our own energy. And this is something that's been studied in Chinese medicine, energy medicine for thousands of years. Right? It's a very common thing. It's just not being widely adopted in Western culture yet. But there's a belief that we have access to a unique energy field that is just for us. That is our authenticity. That is our best medicine. And the more we can tap into this energy field and draw it into our body, also known as the auric field, and anyone that's listening is thinking this a little bit woo-woo, think of the auric field as energy centers that are connected into each other that send and receive information that can delete information or add a higher quality of information if you reprogram it. So it's the foundation of how everything manifested and if you think this is woo-woo, think of how your thoughts are created. If you're thinking positively, there is a positive neurochemical literally manifested and created in your brain that creates an emotional state in your body. Same thing with a negative thought. There's a chemical that then gets created. So it's immediately thought into material, right? Same thing with your auric field. 
based off of the information you're letting in, you're then creating that emotional state within your body, okay? We've been programmed to let in a certain type of information. Same thing with our conscious mind, right? We're only able to see what we've programmed ourselves to see. So at any given moment, when you're judging anything, if we take a moment to, I always use my imagination, this is where imagination comes in, take a moment to breathe deeply and be like, oh, wow, you know, follow me on this. Let's say that someone's angry. I literally feed them an imaginative strawberry and they eat it and then they're all happy again, right? And in that moment, I shift my perception of that thing. I see it, I feel it shift in my body. And then ultimately that thing has no power, for, power on me anymore. And it's weird to comprehend this, but your mind is either a prison or it's ul- your ultimate freedom and gives you the ability to create anything that you want. Right. That's a very insightful sort of way of looking at it. When we talk about this sort of potentiality, which by the way, I think appears in different norms, even in Jewish traditions and other traditions, right? When you talk about this, I'm thinking about the world of ideals, the sort of like the ancient sort of like almost platonic word of ideals, where there's this sort of, there's the best version of Bryant, right? And then you draw from this best version, even though it's utopic, right? That there's, we have always a sort of potentiality of the best version of us. And then we have to draw from that because it is unique to you. Right, because it's not the best version of a person; it's just the best version of you. I think, as far as working with people that have that are hypersensitive and maybe have a smaller window of tolerance, then what I mean by that have sometimes get more pushed into hyper arousal or, or hypo arousal, right, where they get over aroused or under aroused very easily. Some of these symptoms are numbness, fogginess. On the other side of the spectrum, it's hypervigilance, anxiety, all these things. And if you are in an environment where if you or in that optimal state of arousal, then there's someone or something that begins to push you out of that, whether it's towards that numbness, that fogginess, that not being able to move, or on the other side of the spectrum, that that hypervigilance, you know, that anxiety. We don't want to live too far out of our optimal state of arousal. Right. With breathwork, the artistry is keeping people into where they feel safe, comfortable, in a state of trust, and then taking them into processing the motions and the stories, if that's what feels okay and aligned with their agency, their choice in that. So in many ways, what I'm hearing from you, and I like this because right, breath is the only constant, real, true interactions with the world. We see and we observe, we listen, we process, but breath is the only way that we are constantly in. I have a, a fan next to my bed and it has, it's one of the, it's a Dyson, right? And it has one of those, it has a little filter and it constantly tells you like the level of pollutants, that, right? It can't tell you the quality of air, right? It's a little lead five, six, eight, whatever. And it's interesting because when you said, I think about this, right? Because we are this filter, right? We're constantly sort of like breathing in the world and taking out. Breath in that sense becomes the meter, right? Of how we interact with this world, right? 100%. I literally say this all the time and I'm waiting for it to catch on globally. But your when you really look into it, and please everyone that's listening, disagree with me if it doesn't apply to your direct experience. I'm not here trying to be in the truth. I'm here trying to completely raise questions from my direct experience. And 
what I found is your energy at the core, what the kind of the things that we're conceptualizing, right? And it's the best that we can do really is our energy at our core is manifesting our thoughts, our behaviors and quality of decisions and perception of this world. So you can say that this energy at the core, because it's creating those things is our destiny and our free will, right? Is not an illusion, but it's only as good as how well we breathe or how well we take care of that energy at the core because that energy is then manifesting out into those experiences. So I always say, if you really want to utilize your free will, learn how to breathe freely, learn how to take up space with your breath, learn how to breathe as authentically in a way that feels the best for you. Because ultimately when that shifts your state, because your emotions and your breath are interconnected, then you're going to be able to create the state of being that then will effortlessly flow through the world at some level, more effortlessly flow through the world. So you can really unleash your fullest expression, which I believe that's a huge part of why we're here. Yeah. No, for sure. I think, right, what we're talking about is potentiality, right? And the executive form of that potentiality. Potentiality is enormous. What you do with it, right? So, like, you can have, I'm not a, I'm not a big car person, but you, so, like, you have a car, right? The car has a certain amount of fuel, but you need to start it. You need to steer it. You need to direct it where it goes, right? You can have an amazing car with the best fuel, but if you're not steering, it's just going to sit still. And yeah, totally. I always, for a moment, I was like really questioning that the concept of free will. And I think everyone should be able to question the concept of free will, right? Because life is hard and it seems like we make the same less productive decisions all the time. And our ability to have motivation to make better ones slowly dissolves. But that being said, I was perceiving the world from almost as if God was walking me on a leash, right? And I was a dog and I could just go far left, far right. But ultimately I was staying into what I was conditioned to believe and know. And I really spent my whole life learning how to reprogram that energy, that core, those core wounds to be able to have a life that I can at least survive in. Right. <laughs> Look, I think there's always a tension there, right? I think that on one hand, there is determinism, right? I recognize that the decisions I make will stem from my education and my upbringing and my race and my height and my gender and my sex. And right, the sort of the, that I am programmed to a certain degree and therefore, the majority of my decisions will always come from the same resource pool. And therefore, I'll probably make very similar decisions, right? And there are people who believe that all decisions you are going to make have already made, or you've already made them, right? On one hand, so on the other hand, I think, and this is where this comes in, I think both breath work and other conversations I'm having is the ability to approach life with a certain amount of curiosity, right? And in recovery, right, we call it contrary action. Right. If I always, if I, every time I go to this particular intersection, if I always take a right because of who I am and what I'm afraid of and blah, 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 and all that, maybe if I'm become, bring enough awareness, maybe if I take a breath, I can say, oh, what happens if I take a left today? And, and therefore, you know, in that moment, I'm exercising something that could be more like free will because I do think that sort of for the majority of us, even the most free of us, we say free will, but we do the same thing over and over again. And, and not in a bad way, just that's who we are. I would love you to make the correlation between, what is the term called again? It was... What, determinism? No, after that you use in recovery. there was uh, a, Contrary action. Contrary action, love this concept. The spiritual connection to Kabbalism with adding light in your life. When we make the same decision over and over again, but then we make a higher in alignment decision, how that can add light in the life. I think that sort of that the mystical tradition, right, constantly 
do a few things, but one of the things that I find in all spiritual traditions is our inability and therefore so like the spiritual tradition tried to bring us always bring us back to the here to the now that that be present i often say to to clients and people take your damn eyes off your feet and look up i need you to look up because then you can make a decision so in that sense right contrary actions right in vis-a-vis sort of like mystical tradition and vis-a-vis sort of like spirituality and the light in life requires us to observe where we are, right? Assess. And again, I think that's where breathing comes in. Because it's funny when you do a lot of body work, right? So I'm a big, I'm a big yogi, right? I've been doing yoga for the majority of my adult life, right? I'm very well trained now. In fact, recently I've had this new yoga teacher. And so he was like, oh, I don't have to remind you to breathe. But it's because, right, when I first started, right, you take a pose and you hold your breath. And, okay. right, and, and in that sense, that's the wrong thing to do. Because when you breathe, again, you negotiate with this world and be like, all right, I'm all right, <laughs> right? I negotiate with this world, that's good. And now, I can, <laughs> and, now I, and now I can take a contrary action. Now I can see, I can choose. Because I think the breath part tells me I'm all right. If I can resume, quote unquote, normal breathing. Yeah. Yeah. If we're feeling unsafe, if we're feeling, right. let's, unsafety, because that's a big one. If we're feeling unsafe, breath is one of the only ways to create safety, Right. It's if you're breathing dysregulated, then ultimately you're going to have an emotional and well, state of unsafety. And then the way to shift that, and you can happen very quickly, is obviously intellectually calming the front mind down, making sure your body doesn't need food, water, sleep, a hug, right? Making sure it's safe. And then you can calm down the breath, very quickly activate that parasympathetic that gives you the sense of a slower heart rate, the ability to, to come back into the present moment, feel grounded, feel safe. And when you have your breath, you have one of the only tools available to you to control the unconscious processes in your body and to even shift the temperature of your body, which is bananas to me. If you're feeling tired, you need a little cooling, you can take, right, change the temperature and you go into the world. Same thing when you're feeling a little stressed, you can add some heat to calm yourself down. And it's really, I always say it's an incredible way to DJ your reality because without the breath, then you are really subjective to what the world's telling you are and you know what you think you are as soon as you have the breath you have infinite possibilities right right when you think about your life and your experiences what are those sort of major lessons or major moments where you're like damn i need to tattoo this on my forehead you've had multiple like experiences in different fields right and and you are have a very observant soul what are those things that you think to yourself, okay, these are my current axioms of life? And they might change in the future, but in the moment. My favorite one that has reaped me more joy and pleasure than I could have ever imagined is being able to be present with the person that comes across my path and ask them how they're doing. That has unlocked so much bliss for me and so much bliss for other people that can't really comprehend it. And the way that I learned that was I had just quit my job. I was an executive at entertainment for an artificial intelligence company. I walked in the room. I, was, I gave away all my belongings. I gave away tens of thousands of dollars of art. I gave away my pen with a sapphire on it. My employee's like, Brian, my most favorite thing about you is your spirituality. And I was like, I know. But I walked out. I had a freaking Tupac shirt on. It was hilarious. And as I'm walking, I walk like four or five miles. I see the sign. It says, sit down and meditate. And when you have no job, you really can follow the signs. <laughs> so I'm so glad I'm meditating. And this, this big black man comes up to me. And he's like, hey, you need a water. 
And I was like, no, thank you, sir, because I didn't want to take anything. I felt weird taking energy. And he's like, no, 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 let me get your water. I was like, you look really dehydrated. And I unfortunately, I just threw my wallet out with all my work stuff. It was a very dramatic exit from the job. You? So dramatic? We, no. Yeah, no, it's so dramatic. I'm into <laughs> the theatrics of everything, 100%. <laughs> I didn't hit anybody with a keyboard, but I was definitely like... Oh, you were thinking it. Was... <laughs> I was like, it was definitely as nice as I could have been. But um, so he takes me into this restaurant. And before he asks for water or food, I hear him say, hey, how are you? To this lady that's working. And in my heart, I was like, it just resonated as such deep truth. I'm like, before any interaction that I have for the rest of my life, I'm checking in with that person. I'm creating a human connection right there. And let me tell you, when you do this, you get so much free stuff. No, it's true. It's true. What kindness and a smile will do is really rather remarkable. And you know how much free stuff I've given? I've given away so many free things. And by the way, and right, because we talk about America Knox, and, and you know, some people will see this, some people will hear this, but it also helps to look like Brian, just so you guys know. So like, it also helps that you are, looks like a model in movie star, right? So just to acknowledge the fact, doesn't it, right? Yes, you get free stuff. But there's a, I say this with love, there's an amount of great privilege around this, but yeah. <laughs> yeah there's a lot of privilege, 100%, 100% of privilege. I definitely never slept with someone after asking how they're doing though. So that's, at least I'm losing my privilege wisely, okay? But, but anyways, beyond the free stuff and all this beautiful interactions, and mind you, within those interactions, there's people that have said that you taking that moment with me saved my life, right? Or... You you changed my life by being able to ask how I was doing, and I was able to share for that one person what was going on with me. So there's been a lot of divinity and very, very angelic experiences too. I always just like to say you get free shit when you ask how people are doing to get people into doing it, so they can unlock the truth of it. And so this guy asked this woman how she's doing, and she had to have a conversation for a little bit. He grabs two waters and he gives them to me, and here's he goes, here's one for now, one for later. And I was like blown away. I was like, thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much. And I'm walking with these two water bottles. And I go about two blocks, which is walking very slowly. So it was maybe three or three to five minutes. I look to my right. The same exact guy that had just bought me the water bottles is now in a completely different outfit, standing on a pole or sitting next to a pole, completely dehydrated. And I looked at him. I was like, do you want some water, man? And he's like, yes, thank you. And I gave him the water bottle. And I, I was like, for me, it just showed me how the inner workings of giving worked, right? When you give to others, how it ultimately comes back in return. And, you know, it, it was weird and profound and it was wisdom I'll always take with me. So now I live a life of really trying to connect with everybody that I meet. If I feel safe and comfortable to do, right? If I have the energy to do, right? Take care of yourself first. But ultimately really giving unconditionally and ferociously to everybody because I know it's going to come back. And, and I've given away my belongings three times, everything, most of my wealth, multiple times. It felt like a burden to me. I just gave it away to people that would enjoy it. And then let me tell you the things that have been manifested. <laughs> I given away all my belongings. I had a suitcase of clothes. I lost the suitcase. A week later, I was asked to come to a friend's house that's multi, multi, multi-millionaire, hundreds of millions of dollars. And he's like, hey, I'm switching over my style of clothing, anything in here you want. And it was probably like $200,000 of clothes he gave me. I was like, this is awesome. And this is, I think these are these like the little things that can be unlocked when you are very certain in the way that you give and it coming back to you. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, in our tradition, Jewish tradition, there is this sort of idea of charity, but not just charity is altruism, charity because when you give, you receive. There's always this sort of 
always a sort of this, not reciprocal, but this sort of like cycle of, and even if you receive charity in our tradition, you have to give charity. You're never allowed to say, I am just receiving because I don't have anything. There's always somebody who has less than you. There's always somebody who can benefit from something that you have, and which is really quite a thing. And when you're talking about the water, it reminds me of this sort of this idea of that we call, I call, right, the two cup of coffee theology, which I learned from, from a religious person in England, where it's winter, it's New York, there's homeless somebody outside, you go into Starbucks, whatever, you buy a cup of coffee, you give it to them, right? You feel good about yourself, you go about your day, you just give them a cup of soup or a cup of coffee, whatever, which is great. That's one cup of coffee theology. A two cup of coffee theology, right, much like with this person of yours, is I go into Starbucks, I get two cups of coffee, one cup of coffee I give to the person and the other one I drink with him. And I not just give somebody the coffee, the warming coffee, but like I actually give them the gift of dignity and the ability to have it together. That's stunning to me. So yeah, so the two cup of coffee theology. So in that's the two water bottle, the two water bottle theology. Two water bottle theology. Yeah, exactly. That completely changed my entire life. And from that moment on, I made it such a huge mission of mine to be present with people. And I think just playing off of this same theme of the things that I've learned throughout my experience that have been extremely important was that we're all pl- playing this. Right now, we're playing a music. There's a unique happening that's occurring between your energy and my energy. This moment's never going to be created again. It's very unique to this specific space and time. And it's not about the end of the podcast, right? It's not about the beginning of the podcast. It's about each little note, how we're like articulating it, expressing it, and being present with each other, and how we're DJing that reality for the highest good. And I think, like you said earlier, when you tell people to be present, that's ultimately like one of the hardest and most important things that you can learn how to do. And people are losing it more and more, right? People are, and I find it, whether it is pandemic and stamina, or even before social media, whatever technology, but the ability to put down your phone, the ability to write on one hand, just read a book, but you also, on the other hand, just have a conversation with somebody, right? Find it diminishing. That's why I love you because you're just down to hop on a call and talk for an hour. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. First of all, luckily I grew up with like without technology to be distracting. So we we're talking before about authenticity and I think that people have been stunted to really understand who they are and therefore don't always feel that they could offer anything authentic and therefore always need to self-soothe because they feel disconnected to the potentiality of who they are. And what they can offer in a conversation or whatever. And also, I think our inability to just also absorb some silence and just be for a minute. Yes. Yeah. That's so impactful. There's so much you discover in that. It's They say that one of my favorite quotes is like, wisdom comes from silence. So until you find that space of silence, then you don't have the wisdom. And if you're just going and doing what you're thinking you're supposed to do, you're operating and that's beautiful. And sometimes you're supposed to be doing that. But when you drop into that silence and then the next thought you have, right, that's divine thought, that's guidance, that's intuition. And simultaneously, there's a feminine approach where you want to be in the chaos of the emotions. They're not exclusive to each other, right? Right? Exactly. It's happening simultaneously. That's right. And at least for me, in my own practice, solitude and silence is a daily practice of mine, as a real thing, because... Without it, without practice of silence, without practice of solitude, I, I really can't function. 
right? If I don't constantly clear the pathway inside for that silence, for my brain and my thoughts and my feelings and my spirit to, right, to settle and find their way throughout the day, then I lose control. And then when I lose control, I, I want to self-harm, right? In multiple different ways. And that looks, right, for some it's a drink, for some it's food, for some it's worse, whatever it is. Yeah. And the benefits from being able to be in that silence. And listen, I can feel that you spend time there. I could tell immediately for anyone that has a practice where they're clear, you can feel it immediately. And that's important to know is, do you want to be someone that has that that connection and that clarity? Or do you want to just take in on this wild ride, which is still fine too, but you know, you can unlock your gifts and your power, your authenticity through the silence. And one of the things that I love doing is letting go of thoughts. You know, just observing the thoughts, like realizing I'm not the thoughts. That was like one of the biggest parts of my awakening when I was sitting there and I just watched this thought go by. And I was like, wait, wait a minute. How come nobody told me that I'm not my thoughts? I was like, how do I, it took me to 23, 24 to figure this out. Like this whole time I was thinking about, I would sit and meditate for five hours and just think for five hours straight. I had no idea I was in the thoughts. No one said anything. And then as soon as I watched that, that thought go by, it gives you, excuse my language, I'm going to cuss everyone. It gives you an unfuckable with ability to care about nothing. <laughs> like, you, you sit and you have a thought, you're not that thing. You have a thought, you're not that thing, right? It, you're getting take, taken into the formlessness of God or the formlessness of your own innate nature. And that can be very healing. And then when you begin to think from silence, you're like, oh, I am that. And then you can be connected to everything. Right. Yeah, that's it. I'm everything and I'm nothing. If I care about nothing, I care about everything. And if I care about everything, I care about nothing. That's the beauty of it. And one of the, one of the old meditations around this is, right, that you're sitting on the back of a river and there is pieces of wood and whatever and things, but, and you can only look forward. You're not allowed to follow with your eyes as it's coming into and, and leave your sight, right? You can only observe things as they come into your line of sight and then leave your eye live sight. It's Whoa. very difficult, right? And Whoa. in the modern era, when we were all still in person before, I would actually say to people, okay, let's go out. We go outside. I take them to a street. And then I say, okay, look forward. And you have to observe the cars as they move into your line of sight. And as they move out, you're not allowed to follow them. That's amazing. That's it's brilliant. very difficult to do, but it is a practice of that exactly. Of how do I observe myself, my observe my thought without constantly needing to follow them or identify with them or react with them? Definitely. It reminds me of I, I sit on the beach and I listen to the wave crash. So it, it like takes the sound takes like this like 360 degree thing and I observe the sound kind of passing through my... So let me ask you, when you're working with people and they do the meditation, the breath work or whatever, right? Because we're talking a little bit now just about your thoughts and not being your thoughts. Presumably, a lot of people, we call trauma, we call fear, all of a sudden things come in, right? A lot, I think a lot of people don't want to be in the silence because they don't want to think about what's happened to them. It's too much pain. It's too much trauma. It's too much fear. Do you have a suggestion on how people can really either not hold their thoughts or deal with the sort of their trauma and the pain through the yeah. breath work? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for asking. This is an important question for everybody because a lot of the times when people that can get triggered by things go into mindfulness practices, it can exacerbate pain and they can feel like something's wrong with them. And that couldn't be farther than the truth. So I think one thing to be 
aware of is that breathwork is not a one size fit all for everybody. It's it works for a lot of people, but for some people it doesn't. So if you're one of those people that it doesn't work for, there's many other practices to try. Same thing if you close your eyes, then all of a sudden you get flashbacks of the things that you've been through and it, it gets too much. These are the things that meditation breathwork professionals, we're really learning how to work with all the time. And when you, when you build a foundation of, let's say, safety or love, okay, when you build a foundation of the parasympathetic being activated, if you look at a lot of people with PTSD, they have an overactive nervous system, they're constantly stuck in fight or flight, and then they have to numb and use substances to, to be able to survive through that, which is fine, which is okay. And what we want is as soon as we get them into that parasympathetic, there's a process of what's called memory reconsolidation. And this is absolutely incredible. After one week of putting, I believe, veterans into the parasympathetic that had very severe depression, anxiety, hard time sleeping, a substance abuse, after putting them through these this breath work and meditation and putting them in the parasympathetic, what they found is that a majority of their post-traumatic stress disorder completely decreased. So their stress response completely decreased. And when they went back into thinking about the memories of what they've been through, which is a very touchy subject for therapists, psychologists, breathwork instructors, we don't want to have people relive something in a way that can re-traumatize them. We don't want that. If if that's happening to you, make sure to speak up and stay away from that. But simultaneously, when you're put in a state of safety, you're then ability to be able to look at that story and notice that there's a visceral difference of your emotional state when you view it, right? And that power over you, when you look at that story, then dissolves. So what they found is when they were put, able to put the veterans in their parasympathetic nervous system, then when, they were, then when they relived the story of what they've been through that caused that trauma, their relationship to it actually changed. So they did not forget about it, but the anxiety and the stress that it caused when they thought about it actually went away. As I'm thinking about it and really, as I'm thinking about sort of this sort of ability of ours or ability of ours to reprogram, relive, we understand, refine insight, right? Through our ability to um to breathe in this sort of, right, the breath of life, if you will. That life is dependent upon our ability to use this mechanism of breathing. I, I assume you have experience with people in recovery or people to that space. Where would somebody start, right? If they're saying like, oh, I don't know much about this. Where would I, where would I start? Yeah. So there's two main types of breath work and all breath works are based off of these two core principles that there's grounding breath works. So there's breath works that activate the parasympathetic, then there's breath works to activate the sympathetic. So you really need to know what state that you're in and then what state, what type of breath work would then most benefit you into getting you into an optimal state of arousal. So if you're foggy, numb, unmotivated, a sympathetic based breath is a powerful tool. And that's usually a faster paced, more intense breath. Okay. Something like fire breath, kapalabhati, something like holotropic breath. So I would say, we have, as far as time, we don't have time to go over it, but you can look up fire breath, holotropic breath, sympathetic base breath, really good for building motivation, for getting you out of that fogginess and that numbness. Same thing if you're over aroused. So if you have anxiety, stress, all these things, go into a grounding base. So 
Ratio breathing is really good for this. Coherent breathing is really good for this. Anytime you elongate the exhale and slow everything down. And it's funny, I've taught these tools to tens of thousands, if not hundred thousands of people at this point. And even though I give the exact fundamentals of the breath, there's a huge learning curve in them being able to take the time to actually understand this stuff and do it. Go on YouTube, type these things in, practice with someone because as much as I'm like, all right, slow down your breath, do it the way exactly that you want to do to create the state in your body, there's a map that hasn't been discovered to get themselves there yet. Fascinating. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I think that's, I think that always for a lot of people, that part with new things is the most challenging, right? So you hear something cool, but you don't know how to start. You don't want to feel like an idiot, right? You don't want to feel like a failure, right? And also in that space of, is this working, <laughs> right? Because right? I think, again, we we have so few tools to really engage. Am I feeling better? I don't know. Am I like, <laughs> like this is all these things, right? And I would add to that, of course, is one should find a breath teacher. There's more and more so like breathwork teachers of like yeah. online in person and doing all this thing, which find is funny. Find a trauma sensitive one. Say again? So find a trauma sensitive one. Exactly. A trauma sensitive one. For, I find we should find a trauma sensitive everything. Right. I was with a friend yesterday actually, and we're talking about therapy and whatever. He's looking for a new therapist. And I talked a little bit about trauma therapy and he's trauma therapy. I don't need trauma therapy. And I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> that's when you know you need it okay yay for you but no i don't believe it but i think this sort of in that sense also what i like about all this work is it takes time right it's not the sort of immediate thing right and much like athletes who train in breathing and like right thin air so they can enhance the performances that's true for spiritual right sporting events that's right so that's true for all kind of competitions that we have to do whether it is a, a family meal for the holidays you're just being in a party with your ex. So there is, you need a lot of spiritual and breathwork preparation like you would an athlete. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. yeah. We could talk for hours, of course. So we're getting to a place. So I guess just la last few questions. Would you, would you be where you are, you think, if you didn't leave whatever first on America's Top Model or the, the other shows? Do you envision your life in a way that is different than now? For one, I have no idea where I'm at in general. I'll tell you this, though. I'll tell you this. When I was like early 20, I had this dream of if I met the best version of myself, what I would do if I met him. I was 20 years old. And I had this dream that he showed up. And then my first reaction was to just beat the shit out of him, pumble him. And then, by the way, you know, you know, do you know the saying that on the way to Nirvana, if you meet Buddha, kill it? No. Whoa, cool. Maybe I was onto something. There we go. Meet Buddha, kill it. If you, if you want to wait for Nirvana, if you meet Buddha, kill it. So kill the idea of what that is. Yeah, because it's not because it's clearly not there because you're on your way. It's, you're not there. Anyway, sorry. But yes, go ahead. So you beat the shit out of, shit out of him. Oh, got it. Because if you stick to one belief, then you're going to limit yourself in getting there. Very cool. Love that. Thank you for sharing that. So I was, I think I was talking to a friend like a month ago. And I was like, the younger version of myself would beat the shit out of me now. <laughs> You know what I mean? So I was like, it was full circle of me possibly being a version of myself that could greatly impact that version of me that was going through a lot at the time. <laughs> that would have just got obliterated, right? That, it was like a full circle experience. Right. Um, Breathwork? What is that? Come here. Let me smack you around the head. Snake salesman? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny with the snake oil, you know, what the saying at the end was is that he's condemned for it because there was actually no snake oil. 
Do you know this? That the whole thing is that in what he was selling, there actually was no real snake oil. Okay. I always took it as the placebo effect. So being able to empower people with the self-belief to help them heal. Except it's a it, right. It's a negative thought of a snake oil salesman. Yeah, but but there's actually no snake oil in what he's selling. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Dang! So there's not even snake oil in the thing. No. <laughs> so they're like, oh, but what does that do? He was like, oh, this is good. No. What's next for you? I have a app I'm building out for breathwork and meditation. Our goal is to affect a billion people and train a hundred thousand teachers. I'm speaking at the Conscious Life Expo in February, giving the keynote. I'm teaching at Rhythmia, which is a medically certified ayahuasca center in Costa Rica in January. And yeah, I'm just building out the school and taking it day by day, really enjoying a lot of life, really doing my own personal healing work too, which is even when you're teaching and all this stuff, like the way that you stay a teacher is by constantly doing work on yourself and staying in an integrity and embodiment. Excellent. Hang out with you. Last thoughts? Hang out with you, hopefully. Absolutely. 100% as soon as I'm in LA. Last thoughts is if I can do it, you can too. (laughs) <laughs> I love that. I love that. Brian, thank you for this amazing conversation. I love you and I appreciate it. And spending time with you is always such a joy. You're the best. Really. So grateful for you. And thank you to and everyone who's listening well. as well. Thank you so much. This podcast was recorded by Chuva Center. Thank you again all for listening. You can check out our Instagram and our website at Chuva Center, T S H U V A H Center, C E N T E R or chubacenter.org. We're on all the social media platforms.